Father God, we are so glad to have good tidings of comfort and joy, um, the tidings of the birth of our Savior, that we, like every other believer in the history of the church, uh, get to pause this time of year and, uh, and celebrate Him and ponder this most glorious, mis- uh, mysterious miracle that you achieved. That, that Christ was born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, that God dwelled among us. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in a body. What a marvelous, marvelous thought. Would you, would you come, Lord, today? Would you instruct us from your word? Um, God, we need, um, we need to be made joyful and we need to be made thankful. And that's basically all we need. We need to be reminded of just what it meant for Christ to be born of the Virgin in order that we would be joyful, knowing that uh, that was rooted, that work was rooted in your love for rebels. Um, and we need to be made thankful because you did a great work in and through your Son to redeem us to yourself. So, Father, would you um, would you raise up uh, these next few moments, would you raise up your word and, uh, and let it stand and let it encourage, let it build um, so that we might worship Christ uh, in a fitting way. We ask it in his name for his sake. Amen. All right, turn with me uh, to Colossians, if you would. Um, my dad, when he was in the Air Force, they taught him a, um, an answer to a question that you don't know. So if your commanding officer says, hey, um, what's the square root of 95 million trillion thousand or whatever, and you don't know, you can't just say, I don't know, because um, you just don't do that. And so they taught him to say, Having not been informed to the highest degree of accuracy, I hesitate to articulate for fear I might deviate from the true course of rectitude. In short, I'm a very dumb person and do not know, sir. So I had him uh, say that again and again and again, and I memorized it so that, and I actually tried it, and it actually worked. When I was in school and I got a question that I didn't know how to answer, I would say, I would leave off the I'm a very dumb person and just say, Having not been informed of the highest degree of accuracy, I hesitate to articulate for fear I might deviate from the true course of rectitude, period. And I got credit a lot of times. So um, if you need to memorize that, I'll write it down for you. Um, That is uh, like unto what I feel today. So we're pausing our our exposition of the book of Acts, and we're going to spend the month of December to just meditate and ruminate on... Um, all things Christmas, all things Christ, the, the eternal second person of the triune God born of a virgin in Bethlehem to, to obey, to die, to rise, and to ascend so that sinners could be saved. Now, if you were to say, hey, what do you know about, can you tell me about the incarnation? I want to respond having not been informed of the highest degree of accuracy. I hesitate to articulate for fear I might deviate from the true course of rectitude. It's a fearful, fearful thing, okay, to, to try and stutter out these mysteries that are so far beyond human comprehension. 
another military story. I heard a guy saying one time he was uh, undergoing a, a presentation. There were a bunch of, it was all military personnel. And the guy stands up and he starts off by saying, hey, uh, listen, there are a lot uh, better, more qualified men uh, to speak to you about this subject than, than I am. And this guy said immediately, he was in the audience, and immediately he, he's like, well, pff, why don't we have one of those guys? Like, don't tell me who's, who's better than you. And then immediately he says, he, uh, so he says, you know, there's a lot of uh, other guys that could do a better job. And then he looks around and he says, but there's nobody here that can do a better job. And so I'm going to tell you what it is. Okay. So, um, so I will say, though I hesitate to, to try and, um, and point out truth and stir you up to, to ponder these, these miraculous things, um, frankly, I'm as good as anybody. Not because I'm so great, but because we're all so low. These are things that are so astronomically high that the greatest among us has to speak about them um, the way a child stutters. So you are in uh, the book of Colossians, and I want to talk to you not about the story. We're going we're gonna to look at the story later on in the month, but today what I want to talk to you about is the are the um, theological underpinnings of the Christmas story. What is the meaning of, of Christmas? What, what is the meaning of Christ born of a virgin? And so we're going to get some propositional theological uh, meditation today. And if you don't like that, uh, don't wait for me to apologize. Okay, so you are in Colossians chapter 1. Let's read our text and then I'm going to make a couple observations and we'll dig into the text together. So, Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Okay, so I'm gonna I have two big points and then a whole bunch of subpoints. I either have a two-point sermon or a 97-point sermon, depending on how you want to cut it. So um, we'll just dig in. The first thing I want to tell you is I wanna I wanna look with you at this first phrase. He is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? that Christ is the image of the invisible God. There's about three things I want us to think about. First off, for Christ to be the image of the invisible God is for Him to to have visible conformity to all that is God. That when we look at Jesus, we are seeing uh, God made visible. Invisible God made visible before our eyes so that we can say with John Um, The Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. He is visible 
conformity. Now get used to, to turning around because we're gonna uh, we're gonna gonna kind of go all over the scriptures today. Keep your finger in Colossians, and I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter three. Turn with me to Exodus chapter three. I'm gonna show you just a smattering of texts about Jesus, what it means for Jesus to be the image of the invisible God, and we're gonna look at some pre-incarnate. Uh, times where Jesus shows up. These are very familiar texts to you. So Exodus chapter three, verse one. Now Moses was keeping a flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now watch this in verse two. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, is the most important thing that the bush was on fire? Is that what we're told? Uh, a fire appeared to Moses that didn't burn the bush? Is that what we're told? What's the the thing, or rather, hint, hint, the person that is revealed to Moses? The angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. So, so the angel of the Lord appears to him. Moses can look into this burning bush and he can see the angel of the Lord. He can see a person in the bush. Now, keep reading. Uh, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, look in verse 4. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Who called him out of the bush? God called him out of the bush. Wait, who did he see in the bush? He saw the angel of the Lord. This is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ who is the image of the invisible God. That you can see visible conformity of God. You can see um, this angel of God in the midst of the bush. And he is equated with God. He is equated with Yahweh. Okay? Uh, you guys, uh, I, I tell you what, turn to uh, Joshua chapter 5. Uh, turn to the right from Exodus. Um to Joshua chapter 5. Um, this is right before Joshua is going to take uh, is going to take the Israelites into the promised land. They have not conquered Jericho yet. And I want you to see this. Uh, Joshua chapter 5, if you're not good at flipping around, you can, uh, you can just listen. Uh, Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes. Okay, remember... He is the image of the invisible God. So what no eye can see, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has revealed Him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When Joshua lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him. No big deal, right? When, uh, when his, uh, with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Very good question. Do I need to fight you or do I need to welcome you? And this man says, no. I love that. Are you an Israelite or are you a Canaanite? And he says, no. Are you for us, against us? No. No. But I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. Is your spine tingling? Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? Now see if these words sound familiar. We didn't read it from Exodus 3. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, 
Take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Where else have we seen that? I just read it to you. Uh, although I didn't read that part. It's Moses at the burning bush when he sees the angel of the Lord, uh, a, a manifestation of, uh, of the, the second person of the triune God who says, when Moses turns aside, take off the sandals from your feet because God is so holy that when he touches the ground, he sanctifies the ground. This is the image of the invisible God. Joshua chapter 5 Verse 3, um, this Christ is he who appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18 when Abraham lifts up his eyes and he sees three men and we find out later two of them are angels and somehow kind of way, one of them is Yahweh. Christ, pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. The same, uh, the same Christ that wrestles with Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. Uh, that, that Jacob, uh, he, he renames Jacob Israel, he who... Uh, wrestles with God and wrestles with man and somehow has prevailed. He is Gideon's commissioner in Judges 6. He is Samson's foreteller in Judges 13. Okay, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is visible conformity. You've heard the story about the kid in kindergarten and he's doodling on his page and, uh, and his teacher comes over and says, hey, what are you drawing? And little Timmy says, or little Johnny, sorry. Little Johnny says, um, uh, I'm drawing God. And the teacher, very theologically astute and accurate, says, well, nobody knows what God looks like. To which little Johnny says, now they do. Now they do. Well, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has revealed Him. If you want to know what God is what God is like, look at Jesus, for He is God. He is both Word and work of the Father, visible conformity. He is the image of the invisible God, that we can look at Him and behold Him with physical eyes. He's the image of the invisible God. Second thing, what this means, the image of the invisible God. He is representation and expression. Okay? He represents all that God is and he expresses all that God is. Um, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 1? If you don't want to turn or if you can't find it, just listen to this. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God can do that. He can raise up men to speak and to give his word. So long ago, he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Listen. He, meaning Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He, meaning Christ, upholds the universe by the word of His power. Okay? Um, a really, really helpful distinction or definition of terms is the difference between the holiness of God and the glory of God. If you don't have a working definition, you will by the time I'm done. The, the holiness of God is the absolute uniqueness of Almighty God. Nobody is like our God. There's, there's nobody to which you can compare Him and say, oh, this is kind of like this. He's kind of like this. He is absolutely unique in His holiness, uh, comparable to none. That's what holiness is. Uh, weighty radiance glory it's it's holiness now the glory of god is that uniqueness 
being revealed to us. So that's why Christ is the glory of the Father. So he is the one who manifests the holiness of God. God is who he is, whether or not we ever know this, whether or not we could ever see this, ever ponder it. He just is who he is. He is holy. But Jesus comes as the glory of God to make that holiness manifest. So he is the radiance of the glory of God, the shining out of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has revealed him. Um, have you ever had somebody speak for you and misrepresent you? I have two. God is not to be found anywhere by looking within yourself. He is to be found where he makes himself known to men, namely by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He is representation and expression. He is God revealing Himself to us. Okay? He is visible conformity. He is represent, uh, representation and expression. He is, thirdly and lastly on this, undiminished equality of divine essence. Turn to Philippians 2, if you would. Or just listen, whichever. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. Okay, keep turning by it. Philippians 2, listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, the morphe of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If you have a textual note there, look down in the margin and read it. A thing to be grasped meaning a thing to be held onto for an advantage. That he existed equal with Almighty God and he didn't grasp hold, but he opened his hand, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So some would say, well, he's just in the, in the form of God. Maybe he sort of looked like, but he's, but he's really not God. Well, then you would have to say that he's not a man either because though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, there's our word again, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So to apply consistent logic, Jesus has to be fully God, he has to become fully man, and he has to actually die. Or he's just pretending on all of those things. He's not really God, he's not really man, and he didn't really die. He, did, he is all of those things. He is undiminished equality of divine essence, and he empties himself by taking. But there's a real equality in Christ. Okay, so... Um, if you think about this for a moment, if you wanted to know, um, if you wanted to know about me, a good person to ask would be my son Eli. Uh, he could tell you all sorts of positive and negative things about me. Hopefully, more positive than negative, but I have my doubts. But he's a good place to go. Um, he's been with me a very long time. Eli, how old are you? How old are you? He's with me in uh, presence. He's not with me in the sermon, apparently. He's 13. He's been with me for 13 years. He's been with me. All of his days have been with me. But he didn't come into being until I was in my early 20s. So I had 20-some-odd years of him not knowing who I was. There's, there's a whole category, a whole section of my life that he never got to see. He's known me all of his days, but he hasn't known me all of mine. So for Jesus to be the full and final revelation of who God is, He can't ever have come into being. He has to, like 
the Father, and the Spirit. He has to always have been, or else there will be infinity of years and time past that he has no access and no knowledge of what the Father is like. But because he is God, he can fully and finally reveal who God is. Now, um, I, I want to I want to read this to you. You don't have to turn here, but listen to uh, listen to uh, listen to John's Gospel in John chapter fourteen. This is such a cool text. Um, okay, so Philip, they're they're at the end of uh, right before the Last Supper. Philip says to him, Lord. Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. If you'll just do this one thing for us, just show us the Father. Tell us what He's like. Tell us what He's like. Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, um, by the way, when I, was, when I was writing this out, I was thinking about this verse, and, and so I, I kind of wrote it out as best I could remember it, and I got it exactly wrong in a fantastic way. So, um, but it helped me to observe what's act, what He actually says. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. I quoted, uh, have you been with me so long and you still do not understand? That's how I remembered it. Have you been with me for so long and you don't understand? It's not what Jesus says. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Now think about the the antecedent question, the, the, the question that Philip asked. Lord, Show us the Father. And Jesus says, I've been with you for so long and you still don't know who I am. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When we look at Jesus Christ, we are looking at the fullness of the Father. We're looking at the fullness of deity. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Uh, So when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough, Jesus responds, this is what I came to do and it's what I've been doing my entire life is showing you the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, back to Colossians. Secondly, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does this mean, right? This is, just in case you uh, are wondering, If the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons come and knock on your door and they want to blaspheme the name of Jesus by telling you that he's a really good guy. If they want to blaspheme the name of Christ by telling you that he's the greatest man who's ever lived, which is blasphemy. They are not giving Christ his due honor. They almost always come to this text and say, look, he is the firstborn of creation. That is, he is the very first, they take it chronologically, he's the first thing that was ever created, the first person who was ever created. And so, how do we understand this when we, when we say that he is the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn of all creation? How do we understand this? Well, the first thing you need to understand is that this is not a chronological statement or description. It is a ontological description. It is a, a description not about his when he was born, when he came into being. It's about his actual being, that he is he has a position in this universe as the firstborn. Okay? Uh, let me let me point you to a couple of texts here. The firstborn is used biblically for a unique and privileged preeminence. Okay, in Exodus chapter four, verse twenty-two, God calls Israel, he says to Moses, Israel is my firstborn son, you let him go. Now think about this. Israel is a nation. And God says, he's my firstborn son. Is Israel the first nation ever to be created? No. 
No, we're way downstream from, uh, from Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth coming down from the ark and populating the earth. So it's not a chronological statement when God says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. It cannot be chronological, but it's positional or essential. Israel has a special place with God among all the nations, even though they were not chronologically the firstborn. So it's not a chronological statement. It's a statement about right. Deuteronomy 21, 15, and 17 is another text that talks about this preeminence among the firstborn, that it's not uh, primarily about chronology, that it's about essence, that Jesus is the, um, he is the inheritor of all things. Uh, I, I believe it was Athanasius that pointed out, uh, by the way, I'm help, uh, super helped. Trey put me on to um, a guy named Michael Heiser who has an extended meditation on, this, uh, on these verses. Super, super helpful. And he pointed out that Athanasius, who was one of our early on theologians, he, he pointed out the chronological absurdity. If you're to say Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, meaning he's the very first person created, look at what madness ensues. Look at the context. He's the firstborn of all creation for, that's a because, because by him all things were created. Well, how can he be the first creation but part of the creation? There is a very simple um, bifurcation of all beings. There is God and there is not God. There's God, and there's a, a very clear line, and everything else is not God. There is creator above the line. There is creation below the line. Jesus is God. He is creator, for by him all things were created. Well, what kind of things? All things in heaven, all things on earth, all things visible, all things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through Christ and for Christ. By Him, through Him, for Him. John says, in the beginning was the Word, existed the Word. The Word was with God. So there's distinction between the Father and the Son. But the Word was God. There's unity there. This is is why we're Trinitarians. And John says almost the exact same. And all things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus is not part of creation. He's not the very first thing created. He is the originator of everything that's been created because He is the image of the invisible God, very God of very God. Okay? It's not a chronological statement. Okay? Uh, Secondly... This has to do with being, being that he's called the firstborn. It has to do biblically, Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament background here. And any, um, any first century person who is familiar with this Bible would have taken it this way. That it speaks about Jesus as the Davidic fulfillment of the promises that God made to David. If you would, um, put your finger here and turn with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. I want to point out some fantastic things to you from Psalm 89. I'm almost done. I promise. Um, Psalm 89. We're going to look at uh, two sections, 1 through 4 and then 20 through 29. And I'll be brief. But look at uh, Psalm Psalm 89, verse 1 through 4. And I want you to spot what's repeated. Spot the, the words that are repeated. I will sing the steadfast love of the Lord forever. My mouth will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. 
You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So steadfast love and faithfulness, steadfast love and faithfulness that's tied to God's covenant promise to David to build up a kingdom, house, and throne that would last forever. Your, I will establish, David, your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So this is a promise that God made to David. Now look in verse 20. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love will be with him. It's that, it's that theme. The Davidic covenant manifests the faithfulness and steadfast love of the Father. In my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn. Pop quiz, you biblical theologians. What birth order was David? Was he the firstborn in his family? No. He was, his young, he was the youngest one. He was the one who when Samuel came and told Jesse, bring all your sons. He didn't even get invited to the party because he was united still with his uh, in his mother's tent. He was a young, young man. So the father says about the Davidic line, uh, he will say to me, you're my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. My covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens of his kingdom. There shall be no end. So this idea of the firstborn of creation is the Davidic fulfillment. Jesus, as creator, made all things. Jesus, as king, rules all things. Jesus, as firstborn, inherits all things. This is enough to elicit highest honor and deepest gratitude even if there was never an incarnation. That reality that this God became a man stupefies the imagination. That this eternal one, this very God of very God, one with the Father, He became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the most mystifying marvel that the mind can conceive. You can search far and wide and never begin to approach any system or any worldview that brings with it this type of beauty or goodness or truth. That the Word, the eternal Logos of God who was in the beginning with God, who was God, through whom all things were made, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we can know God. The Word became obedient to the point of death so that we can be forgiven by God. The Word became flesh that He could raise from death so that we could be reconciled to God. The Word became flesh so that having ascended into heaven, He might rule all things for us so that we can live before God. The Word became flesh so that every time we gather, our grubby hands might grasp the bread and our sin-stained mouths might sip the wine. O great God in heaven, You have become you became the great God on earth so that those who dwell on earth might dwell with you in heaven. Or rather, that those who dwell on earth might make the earth heaven. 
we cannot and dare not say that we understand these things. We must receive. We eat and we drink now in remembrance of Christ, proclaiming His death until He comes. Oh God, be pleased to stretch our minds just a bit further, that we might see just a bit farther. And by seeing, believe just a bit more. And by believing, be made glad indeed. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Come and welcome to Christ. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, as we come now to this most fitting sacrament in a, in a, in a season where we celebrate the eternal Word of God made flesh, um, that His body became bread for us, His blood was shed, became wine for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of the new covenant. It is fitting, Lord, that we wouldn't just hear these promises and try and believe them in some mystical way, but that we would come and put food in our mouth and drink in our mouth, remembering He who was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, to become bread for the nations. God, we have no capacity to even begin to approach these mysteries. And so we, we put our hand over our mouth, but we smile anyway. Because the, these are the things that you have revealed to us, and so we take them on faith. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you help us to eat and drink in faith to receive Christ better? Would you come? Would you minister to us? All of the benefits of the Word made flesh. We ask it in His name and for His sake. Amen.